0: On this podcast previously, we've discussed the Florida Black Seminoles as a group. They allied with the Seminole against the U.S. government's Indian removal policy of the 1830s. When some captured Seminoles consented to removal to Oklahoma, many Black Seminole accompanied them on the journey. A number of Florida Black Seminoles stood out with distinction during this period and are remembered today in history books. Students of the Second Seminole War may recognize these names already, Abraham, John Caesar, Gopher John, also known as John Horse or John Cavallo. With us today to discuss them is Dr. Anthony E. Dixon, who returns to our podcast after earlier discussing Black Seminoles as a group. Dr. Dixon is the author of Florida's Negro War. He is the founder and president of AHRA, the Archival and Historical Research Associates. He is an adjunct professor of history at Florida A&M University and has been the field director for the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network dr anthony dixon welcome back to the Seminole wars thanks for having me glad to be back indeed dr dixon probably the most famous black Seminole is a man named abraham who was abraham
1: abraham from what we have gathered and the research we've collected on it abraham first appears in record in florida in pensacola he is enslaved to a banished doctor which indicates for us that he was more of a domestic servant, being that the Spanish uh, had most of their enslaved Africans and African-Americans for domestic labor, and the fact that his owner, per se, was a doctor. So we are assuming that he was in a domestic in the city of Concecola. And what was his relationship with the Seminole? Well, from what we know, he has from the Pensacola area and he comes back toward Tallahassee area. We do have evidence that he was in and around the Negro fort before it explodes. And so being an, uh, in a, a state, uh, slave, he would have come in con- constant contact with Native Americans as well as other blacks in the area. And so he began to cohabitate with the rest of the Florida Maroons, originally beginning going into the Panhandle area, then going down toward uh, Gainesville in a, in a southeast direction. What do you mean by the term Maroons? Maroons, these are escaped slaves. The first record of our Maroons actually comes from the Spanish. In this earliest recording the evidence, they have their very first established uh, where they tried to establish their very first settlement. That settlement was actually uh, destroyed. There was a riot, the Native Americans attacked it, the African slaves helped burn it down, and they absconded into the Florida wilderness. And so we say that's the very beginning of what we call the Florida rules. And in time, as uh, La Florida began to get settled, and then, of course, the English colonists began to emerge. More and more Africans began to escape and come down into La Florida. And then we even get to a specific period where we see groups of runaways coming primarily out of the Carolinas who are bringing a distinct culture with them. We call this culture Gullah, and the language that they speak is called Geechee. And so what we find is that as more and more of them... Beginning in the late 17th century, began to come in. They bring this culture, this language is actually intermingled with and brought in with Native American terminology and Native American words, and so then it becomes known as what we call the Afro-Seminole Creole dialect. And so it is through that cohabitation and that I guess past crossing. Uh, By living in the uh, wilderness, we began to see the different maroon societies pop up, beginning first along the St. John's River. Then in time, as plantation society begins to grow and increase in the state of Georgia, and Georgia is becoming that colony, that 13th colony, we start seeing a shift toward the west first and then down into Present day Florida into the Tallahassee and Gainesville area. And so this is where we start seeing the distinct bands of the different Florida Maroons, which develop into the bands of black Seminole.
0: How did he help the Seminole to prepare for what he and many of them saw as an inevitable war with the U.S. Army?
1: Well, I think it is important to understand that Abraham is a,
0: truly a dynamic person for his time because he's
1: in his life and his experiences, it placed him in different positions. So he was able to become uh, quite multilingual. He understood Spanish words, he understood Native American words, he understood color, ASC, and of course, English. And so, in that, his ability to speak and talk with various people is what kind of increases ascendancy into power in terms of being a leader for the sem- not only the black seminoles but the seminole nation because he then becomes the most trusted advisor to the primary native american chief and so that placed him in a very high position there and so we see in different time periods and different negotiations where abraham is clearly person who's doing the interpretation as well as doing the talking to the U.S. government and to the military. Uh, we see it even as far back prior to the Second Seminole War beginning, where Abraham is a
0: part of earlier negotiations between the Seminoles and the U.S. government. Did the Seminoles and the black Seminoles have different motivations for waging the war and for bringing to peace?
1: Yes, what we find is that even in the earliest times, when they first and when I say earliest times, I mean prior to the Second Seminole War and after the First Seminole War. We see negotiations uh, beginning to develop around the ideas of immigration and that it was about the Native American removal and these black removals out of uh, Florida. And we can clearly see how the importance of it is. Florida does not become a U.S. territory without the First Seminole War. So it's clear that how the Native Americans and how these blacks go in Florida, so does how Florida goes in terms of aggression into becoming a United States state. And so what we find though is that Native Americans do not wish to leave Florida. They are, they, uh, come in, they become accepted to the land as they see it, and so it is their land as they saw it. And so for blacks though, The primary objective is freedom. Uh, most of the, most of the blacks by the time we get, by the time we get through the second Seminole War, the whole plantation society and the ideas around enslavement and ownership is well established and well known. So you have some Maroons who were former slaves, but you also have some Maroons who are now second and third generation their second- and third-generation uh, maroon-slash-black criminals. So some of them have always known the life in Florida. So for them, freedom was the primary objective, whereas Native Americans keeping the land was their primary objective. And so we see that issue coming up not only just within the Seminole Nation, but we also see that issue coming up time and time again in the negotiations
0: with the United States. Abraham helped advise the Seminole on how to wage the war, and he also advised the Seminole in the negotiations to end the war. How key was he a player in the negotiations?
1: Oh, he was very key. We have several instances where advisors and different people at the negotiating table for the United States and for the military are complaining that they are thinking that negotiations are going well, and then they say something that is objectable to the black Seminoles, as then the Seminole Native Americans are rejecting the entire deal. And so we see Abraham's negotiations being quite pertinent to how things are actually going throughout the war.
0: What became of Abraham and the black Seminole who did migrate?
1: Yes, look, we get the first major wave, In 1838, this is when most of the black Seminoles agree that the United States is going to to keep their word according to Article 5 of the Articles of Capitulation. When this happens in 38, most of the black Seminoles stop fighting. I and other historians agree that this is where the major shift in the relationship between the Native Americans and blacks happens. And it happens as a gift because it is clear that when they get out west, when they get to the Arkansas Territory, present-day Oklahoma, that Native Americans are upset with blacks. They're upset that blacks stopped fighting. They felt like they should have continued to fight with them. Not only that, though, we see where Blacks are thinking that the dynamics of their relationship would change with this newfound freedom and relationship out West. And Native Americans aren't seeing it that way. And that was particularly the guise of the what we call the tribute field. Basically, in Florida, there were three fields between a Seminole Native American village and a Black Seminole village. One of the fields was for uh, the Native Americans. Another field was for the Black Seminole. And then the third field was a field that they worked together, but it went to the Native Americans as a tribute field. Now, Native Americans continued to expect that tribute field once they got out west. And Black Seminoles did not think that they needed to continue to give them a tribute field because the tribute seal was also tied to the under the guise of protection, and they didn't need to pay for protection anymore. Right. The whole relationship began to
0: deteriorate once
1: blacks began to stop
0: fighting and agreed to immigrate to the Arkansas Territory. Besides Abraham, there were other notable black Seminoles. One was John Caesar. Who was John Caesar? John Caesar
1: was actually older than Abraham. He was himself a runaway. He absconded himself, uh, but he would go back to the plantation on a regular basis. Now, he was located along the St. John's River. He belonged to the Maroon Society and the Black Seminoles along the St. John. By this time, we would call them Black Seminoles. His main job was to recruit. He would go and convince those two abscond. He would convince them to escape and come grow the Maroon Society. We also see him as being the top advisor for the Seminoles as a whole, which would have made him the chief Black Seminole along the St. John's River and the St. John's Band. What we know from them is that he also primarily led what we call a plantation raid, where they would raid a plantation, they would get supplied.
0: So how did John Caesar lead?
1: Well, John Caesar was considered the Black Seminole leader for the St. John's Band. He was the primary interpreter for the Seminole Nation, and he was primarily responsible for recruiting more black Seminoles. In other words, he would go to the plantation and what they would call their plantation raid. Sometimes he would go and he would simply convince many of them to escape. As many as he could, he would bring back into the black Seminole villages with priests. We know that he would visit plantations from time to time because we also understood from information that his wife was still enslaved. Now, of course, for us, that would Indicate that she was highly visible. In other words, she probably worked in the house, so her going missing would sound the alarm and they would eventually find her and find everybody else. But as a leader, John Caesar took the lead in recruiting, but also in what we call those plantation raids when they would gather supplies. They would steal horses, they would get supplies, they would get all the things that they would help for their survival. And then in certain instances, they would actually even burn the plantation down as well we do notice towards the end of 1835 for those latter months there was an increased effort to garner supplies and things of that nature it gave us the verified proof that we needed in trying to understand how the seminole nation got ready and prepared themselves for the second seminole war and we know now that those plantation raids in the fall of 1835 was specific in nature in terms of getting prepared for what they thought ultimately would end up in war. His leadership also came into question, and it indicated what was to come in the future. After the the war gets started, during one of the negotiations, John Caesar says something that is primarily in favor of the black seminole and so the seminole native americans are not happy with him and so
0: this is where we see abraham really rise to be the most trusted black seminole we know abraham survived the war and went to oklahoma and john caesar died in a plantation raid there's a third black seminole john cavallo also known as john horse who is he As we go through Second Seminole War, we
1: see another young man, John Horse, who's actually younger than Abraham, and he's out of the Taffer band. And so we've had a black Seminole leader out of each of the three bands become the primary black Seminole leader for all black Seminoles and most of the advice. So what happens is during the Second Seminole War, John Horse is a young man. He is coming into being. He began as always someone recognized in the community because his father was a Native American chief, but his mother was of African descent. She was a black Seminole, which made him a black Seminole because his father's ranking. He was considered a chief of the black Seminoles very early. Yes, that's of course in the Temple area. Now there's an interesting story about how he gets the nickname Gopher John. They said during his teenage years, he would go up to Fort Brook and he would talk to the officers there. Manning officers used to pay him for gophers. And so John would sell him gophers to eat. As the story goes, he would present a gopher to him and he'd say, okay, John, go put him in the trap and he would pay him. So John would go put him in the trap and then he'd get paid. Then John would come back. And do it again and again each day. And so by the end of the week, the commanding officer is expecting to see four or five gophers in the trap. And he realizes there's only one because John goes back that evening and steals that out of the trap and still them the same gopher over and over again that is how he gets the nickname Gopher John. And of course, he's the son of a chief, so they're not going to make much ado out of it. it definitely, they wouldn't want to, something like that to cause, ignite any serious fighting. So instead, the commander actually just laughed it off, and that's how he got the nickname Gopher
0: John. During the Second Seminole War, when he had a leadership role, they would say, ah, oh, there's that Gopher John again, because the army knew him. Yeah,
1: like I said earlier. He had been going up to the fort all his life pretty much. They were well acquainted with him. And so we see him when he really gets his prominence, when he becomes the right hand of Osceola. And when Osceola becomes the primary war chief, that puts John in the same position as the primary black Seminole war chief. I think it's important to understand that he was a young man. He and Osceola were young. Abraham was much older. And so John is taking a more leadership role on the battlefield, to where Abraham is the primary leader. He's on the battlefield, but he's prominent in negotiations as well. By the time we get to 1837, we get the Articles of Capitulation, Article 5. Uh, that's the one that most concerns, Black like Seminoles. When Article 5 goes in, and yes, the double from pressure from slaveholders, slaveholding community in Carolina and Georgia. He goes back on his word, and he begins to try to round up blacks to return them to slavery instead of allowing them to immigrate out west. And when he does that, it really fought the war again. When this happens, Abraham has considered that he has done his job. He's gotten the articles of fire included in the articles of capitulation. Black Seminoles will get to retain their freedom. When Jessup goes back on his word, this is where we clearly see John Ford taking the leadership because now all negotiations have been done. There's nothing else left to negotiate. They went back on their word, plain and simple. Now they're just fighting. At that point, this is where we really see John
0: Horse beginning to emerge as the primary leader. He advised Osceola. He fought with Wildcat. Any other famous names? When we start talking about
1: famous names, I think it's more important we look at those events because it is at this point Point, once we get to the thirty eight and thirty-nine, Abraham leaves, but John Horse returns. That is the clear point. When he becomes clear government guide, a government agent to try to persuade the other black Seminoles that it is not a hope, that the government did keep their word this time and that they are out west in this territory living free. This is clearly where we see them as the leader. And then even further on into Black Seminoles history outside of Florida, we see him as the leader who leads black Seminoles on to Texas and Mexico. Because of that tip that we mentioned earlier. So we see John Horse emerging as that leader through fighting, and he fought all over the state, and I think that is what made him famous in terms of being recognized as a leader during the Second Seminole War. I think it's important to understand that he was considered Osceola's right hand, as we've seen with both John Caesar as well as Abraham. When you are the primary advisor to them, then you are are considered also the primary black Seminole chief as well. As Osceola began to ascend in terms of prominence in the war, John Horse did as well, because a lot of the significant events, a lot of the significant uh, negotiations, John is right there with Osceola. He is asking that he be there. That is uh, what we have to keep in mind the most, that these positions as advisors was the determinant there for a lot of different events, and that John Horse Showed his prowess and his leadership on the battlefield itself, with different uh, at different times in his different primary battles. But I think it's the emergence of him doing so
0: and becoming also a diplomat once they are emigrated out with. Let me shift gears a little bit. You're the president of AHRA, the Archival and Historical Research Associates. Why did you found it, and what is its purpose?
1: Uh, we are a uh, for-profit research company that helps and assists people with their archival and historical writing as well as research. We work with libraries on exhibits, we work with museums on exhibits, we work with archives tons of helping develop their archival procedures or things of that nature, anything to assist in research and historical research of, of our country as well as specific dynamics within the country's history.
0: You were also previously the field director for the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network. Tell us about that network.
1: That network is a conglomeration of approximately 60 museums and historical sites around the state of Florida and places that are dedicated to preserving the black history and black experience and culture in Florida.
0: Our time's almost up, but before we go, please tell our listeners who want to learn more about the AHRA, about the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, and about you, Dr. Anthony Dixon. How can they learn more? What's the best way to reach out to you? Oh, well,
1: the easiest, simplest way through my website, www.propaedixon.com. That website gives you all of my publications. It tells what we do with with RR. RR also will develop as we continue to work with more entities. There will be more things that people will hear in terms of our research and our work,
0: specifically with Preservation projects. Once again, Dr. Anthony Dixon, thanks so much for joining us for The Seminar Wars. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roast'em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, second seminal win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.